0: Okay, so let's get started. Thanks for coming um, to the first in uh, six lectures on early modern plays. What I'm going to do every week is take a single play uh, and talk to you about it and why it's interesting uh, and what you might do with it if you're working towards Paper 4. Uh, for the FHS. Um, So my handouts are going to be examples of where to take this work rather than a a sort of recap of everything I've said in the lecture. I hope that will give you a chance to listen to the lecture and maybe just pick out the things that you think are going to be interesting and then know what to do and how to follow those up later. Um, I'm experimenting with recording these lectures for podcasting so if you've got a really distinctive cough that you want to um, copyright you better come and talk to me about it afterwards, and we'll split the huge proceeds from this. Uh, I hope that the podcasting, uh, by next week I should be able to tell you what the address is, so that uh, if you want to keep up with the lectures but don't want to turn up on Tuesdays at 11, uh, or if you want to be part of the early modern fan base across the world, that's for the people who are listening, um, uh, you should be able to follow them that way. Okay, so I'm talking about the Spanish tragedy. So the Spanish tragedy is written by Thomas Kidd sometime in the late 1580s or early 1590s, and it's first published in 1592. Critics who are interested in an early date, so towards the early end of that 1580s to 90s span, uh, are mostly suggesting that a play about the Spanish, which doesn't mention the Armada, the Spanish Armada, 1588, is very unlikely, okay, so that therefore it must precede 1588. But there isn't any. Firm evidence uh, to date it more precisely than some, somewhere about the end of the 1580s into the 1590s. So it's a com- it's a, a contemporary of uh, Tamburlaine and the Marlowe plays. And in fact, Kidd at this time, the end of the 1580s and into the 1590s, is sharing lodgings with Christopher Marlowe. And in fact, one of the parallels which I think might be interesting to explore is uh, Kidd's plays in relation to Marlowe's plays, which we tend to know better. So the Spanish Tragedy is usually offered as the first English revenge play, a play focusing on violent retribution uh, for a crime committed. So it's a play that has its antecedents in Seneca, in Senecan drama, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. Uh, And one of the things I want to really get across to you is it's enormously popular, hugely, hugely popular, really hard to overstate that, uh, and really influential on subsequent drama and on literary culture. So if you want one text from this period, from the whole period that Paper 4 covers, 1509 to 1642, which you feel has some kind of uh, really extensive coverage, both in print uh, and in performance, I think probably the Spanish tragedy is the one. Uh, it's very difficult, isn't it, when you're looking at all these texts from the 1590s, thinking, uh, from, sorry from the 16th century, thinking about how many people <coughs> knew them. We know that literacy rates are pretty low, um, maybe uh, 30% for 30% for men, something like that for, for city men uh, at the end of the 16th century. So literacy rates are very low, book buying rates are very low. The kind of um, the kind of ap- appeal and the kind of reach that a literary text of any sort could have in this period is quite uh, is probably quite limited and quite difficult to, uh, to to quite trace. But the Spanish tragedy is a play that we know to have been. Uh, Supremely popular on the stage and in print, and therefore uh, it has a claim to tell us something about that culture, which maybe some of the other texts uh, that we we value more now don't. We know that Shakespeare, Johnson, Decker, Webster, Marston, Middleton, (coughs) Fletcher, and Haywood all read or saw it. I mean, we know that for a fact because they quote from it uh, or they rework it. So, uh, Shakespeare, Johnson, Decker, Webster, Marston, Middleton Fletcher and Haywood, all the playwrights, that is, uh, writing around that time uh, or later. In the mid-years of the 1590s, the play is known to have been performed a near record 29 times. Uh, maybe that doesn't actually seem very many, but it reminds us that most plays in this period, even plays we really value now, like, say, the plays of Shakespeare, probably get uh, a number, a total number of performances which is fewer than 10. Okay, This is a theatre which wants new plays, which has a huge appetite for new plays, uh, which performs plays uh, in a sequence which, uh, w- which stresses novelty and stresses them when they're new, but isn't really very interested in repeats or reruns uh, or re- w- what the modern theatre calls revivals. Okay, so it's as far away as you can imagine from going in February to Stratford and seeing the same production that somebody will see in December or you know, two years later that the, our models now uh, are very different from the models uh, of, the, um, of the early modern theatre. So the Spanish tragedy is performed a near record 29 times. Only Marlowe's play The Jew of Malta and an anonymous and now lost play called, it sounds as if it must have been fantastic, The Wise Man of Westchester were more frequently performed. Okay, that reminds us two other things. Uh, we've probably lost the majority of plays from this period um, because print... Is not the predominant mode of circulation of these texts. Okay, they're not really primarily written for people to read. Uh, they're written in order to be performed. So most most texts don't make it into print, and therefore, although we have some plays in manuscript, most plays, probably almost the majority of plays from this period, uh, have been lost. We might also remember we don't know who wrote the Wise Man of Westchester, uh, and often we don't know who wrote th- who wrote the, uh, the plays and and indeed other texts of this period. If you've done if you've covered any of the theoretical work on authorship, maybe last year as part of um, Mod's Paper One or something, thinking about what authorship does. Uh, what Foucauldian ideas of authorship might be, or what Bart says is possible if you don't have an author. You know, the death of the author is the birth of the reader. We might think of the early modern period as being a period before the birth of the author. I mean, before the author became that tyrannical figure Bart imagines in that essay, the death of the author, as someone who has to be overthrown. Um, this, is, this is a time before authors, in, for the, in the main, become really significant um, uh, parts of the marketing of their... Uh, Of their text and the understanding of their texts, which is what makes Spencer uh, a really interesting case. Spencer is writing anonymously but also trying to push himself forward. He's writing for patronage and this kind of tension between uh, a self assertion through print and a kind of self negation. Nobody who writes about the Spanish tragedy in the period when it's written and popular has any interest in who it's by it's only later that it becomes uh, attributed to Kidd. So Kidd is not himself famous, even though the play uh, itself hugely is. So um, I hope you can see that what I'm trying to do by picking out some, some specific plays is to try uh, to build up some sense of uh, the early modern theatre and how it worked, uh, and I'm, I'm going to try and build on that uh, week by week through this term. So the point so far has been to establish the blockbuster credentials of the Spanish tragedy, a play with enormous reach, widely known, cited, imitated, and parodied. I'm going to just give you a quick outline uh, of its plot now. I'm not going to assume in any of these lectures that you know the play already, uh, but I suppose my aim is that by the end of the lecture you kind of have a sense that it might be interesting to you or that you might want to try to. So the Spanish tragedy begins with a ghost, the ghost of Andrea, who together with his companion, Revenge, watches over, maybe controls, I'm going to come back to that point later, watches over and maybe controls the events which follow. Andrea is a Spanish soldier of relatively humble origins, who has been killed in Spain's war with Portugal. He's been killed by the Portuguese prince, Balthazar, and he discusses how he's going to get revenge for this death with the character Revenge we also hear in this early part of the play that andrea was secretly courting the spanish princess bell imperia and bell imperia becomes a kind of honeypot uh, around which a lot of the uh, action in this play uh, turns and in that she anticipates those highly sexualized uh, sort of heroine uh, come villain female figures that we get in Slightly later, Elizabethan tragedy, and into the Jacobean period, and there I'm thinking about uh, someone, say, someone like the Duchess of Malfi, uh, Beatrice Jana in the Middleton's play, *The Changeling*, um, the way that women get treated later, later on in the uh, in, in the period. Even someone like Gertrude, maybe Gertrude in *Hamlet*. So Andrea and Revenge watch as Horatio, who is the son of a Spanish civil servant, Hieronymo. So, Hieronymo becomes the main figure in the play as we see it, uh, and Hieronymo's son, Horatio, argues with Lorenzo, the prince of Spain, about who has captured Balthazar, the prince who killed Andrea. Later, Imperia, who was Andrea's sweetheart, switches her affection to Horatio in order to get him to revenge Andrea's death. We learn that Balthazar, who is nominally imprisoned in Spain, but in fact is treated extremely well, is also in love with Imperia, and that Lorenzo thinks that if Balthazar and Imperia were to marry, this would be a good end to the Spanish-Portuguese war. So, inevitably, perhaps, Lorenzo and Balthazar need to get rid of Horatio in order that the marriage between Imperia and Balthazar can proceed. Uh, And they kill him, they kill Horatio, during a tryst with Imperia in Hieronymo's garden. Hieronymo comes out to discover his son's body strung up, and he's beset by uh, bouts of madness, grief, and then after some debate and some prompting by Imperia, a secret vow to avenge Horatio's murder. Balthazar and Imperia are to be married against Belimperia's wishes. Hieronymo proposes that all the people, Balthazar, Lorenzo and <coughs> Imperia, act in a play for the wedding celebrations, a play he has written called The Tragedy of Solomon and Persida. The others think that maybe this tragedy is not so suitable for the wedding, but they decide to humour Hieronymus, who's becoming increasingly uh, weird and strange. Bell Imperio is in on the secret. The theatrical daggers do not have those handy retractable <coughs> blades, they're real ones, and Balthazar and Lorenzo kill each other in the play, each thinking the other is only pretending. Belimperia also kills herself. <coughs> That's not in the script, but uh, it's a tidy—it's uh, a tidy realization that there isn't kind of a space for her uh, in in any future beyond the play. Hieronimo is captured and required to confess, so he bites out his tongue so he cannot speak. He's then required to write out his confession, so rather foolishly, they bring him a penknife to sharpen his pen. You're ahead of me. He gives a quick stab to murder Lorenzo's father uh, and then turns uh, the knife on himself. The end of the play sees Andrea and Revenge promising to cart all the miscreants off to hell and in a great ominous final uh, phrase of the play, the very final words of the play, uh, in hell I'll there begin their endless tragedy. So uh, Revenge ends the play by saying, this is just a start. Uh, This is just a start of their punishment. So it's very clear from that synopsis that the play is one of uh, sensation, even serial sensation. What I want to suggest is this is its hallmark and its genius. The Spanish tragedy involves a brilliantly excessive catalogue of on-stage deaths and violent action. Kidd includes a scene in which an innocent man is bound at the stake, about to be burned before our eyes, before being reprieved at the last moment. But he then follows it with a parallel scene in which another man firmly (coughs) expects to be reprieved from hanging, but then at the last moment he isn't. And probably the prop which which unites those two things, some sort of central uh, gallows or central... uh, some central piece of, of stage business unites those two things literally and probably also visually unites them with the tree or the, or the trellis, uh, as you see on that picture that uh, Horatio is, is strung up on. The play includes murder by stabbing, uh, a body strung up in a tree, murder in the guise of drama, three suicides, self-mutilation, several scenes of running mad or ranting, most notably that of... <coughs> most most notably that of Isabella, the wife of Hieronimo and the mother of Horatio, who raves through the garden in which her son was killed, destroying all in her path and then herself. At the end, at least seven people are dead in a Holocaust which has wiped out more or less the whole Spanish court, or at least the whole cast of the play. The whole play seems to be a dramatisation of Lorenzo's cynical tag, where words (coughs) prevail not. Violence prevails. Where words prevail not, violence prevails. And if that's true, language has failed pretty spectacularly in a play which is structured around and punctuated by acts of violence in the way that Hamlet, a play heavily influenced by the Spanish tragedy, might be thought to be structured by soliloquies, acts of language. Now, that words, sorry, that words have failed doesn't mean that they're unimportant in this play. And part of the pleasure of the play is rhetorical excess. I'm going to take one example, which for contemporaries was the most famous in the play. Hieronymo's soliloquy in Act 4, Scene 2. So this soliloquy in 4.2 begins, <coughs> it's, a, it, it's, a kind of a, it's about 30 lines, but it begins, O oh, eyes, no eyes... But fountains fraught with tears, o oh life, no life, but lively form of death, o oh world, no world, but mass of public wrongs, confused and filled with murder and misdeeds, and that that formulation, o oh eyes, no eyes, o oh life, no life, o oh world, no world, is one of the um, uh, almost, I'm trying to think of a kind of musical metaphor almost, it's, it, it's kind of one of the jingles that, that, that demeans it, but it's one of the uh, refrains from the play that, that it gets picked up over and over again. If you do one of those, oh this, no this, you know, in t- sort of two or three lines, everybody kind of knows that you're talking about the Spanish tragedy uh, in the late 16th and 17th century. So Hieronymus' rhetorical repesi- repetitions here establish and negate The central nouns, the central terms, eyes, life, world, eyes, no eyes, oh life, no life, oh world, no world. It's a conjuration of the extreme disturbance caused by his son's murder, in which all terms need to be renegotiated. The world's recasting here, then, is a linguistic one. These rhetorical figures of cancellation, oh eyes, no eyes, oh life, no life, a sort of miniature versions of the play's own destructive energies. It is a play about, on the one hand, assertion, assertion of identity, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, but also its cancellation. People establish their identity just at the moment they're going to die. Critics have admitted that the Spanish tragedy is significant in histories of English drama, in that it's probably, as I've said, the first revenge play, probably the first play to include a kind of Machiavellian character in Lorenzo, and I guess by Machiavellian uh, we mean someone influenced by the writings of Machiavelli with their stress on human will rather than divine um, limitation or or religious limitation. So to be Machiavellian in the Elizabethan period, it's almost always a term of of abuse. It's not a good thing to be, although it's a very fascinating thing to be. To be Machiavellian is to assert your own your own human will on the world uh, and to, rather than to submit to some kind of divine will. So perhaps the first play to include a Machiavellian character in Lorenzo, the first to include a play within a play, perhaps even the first, English, uh, first modern English tragedy. They have, however, turned the sense that the play is an early attempt, perhaps even the first attempt at all these things, into a way of criticising it particularly for its supposed crudeness or unsubtlety. You'll want to be aware, as I'm sure you already are, as you work on Renaissance literature or drama, that teleological narratives of progress, the idea that literature gets more and more complex or more and more sophisticated, are both false, they can't really account for Dan Brown, for instance, and also misguided, Complex and sophisticated can be, but are not necessarily positive aesthetic terms. We tend to, we tend to look back at them, uh, look, look back at earlier literature with a critical and aesthetic vocabulary, uh, w- which isn't always attuned to uh, what was valued at the time. For the drama of the Renaissance period, um, sorry, there's, al- there's often an unexamined critical vocabulary of aesthetic merit in which unsubtlety can only be bad less good than, and a failure to achieve subtlety. So subtlety becomes a, a valorized term, and unsubtlety is just uh, a failure to achieve that. I think for drama of the Renaissance period, this criterion is largely derived from later interpretations of Shakespeare, and then applied to his contemporaries in a formula which is designed to make Shakespeare seem better, and therefore to always find them wanting. And I guess what I want to suggest is that the so-called unsubtlety of the Spanish tragedy uh, is what's so great about it. It's a bold, big-scale play about big-scale emotions and big-scale actions. It's not, I think, a failed interior psychological study. Kidd's method is largely to externalise. It's to externalise. It's to show us characters in action or in speech, not in reflection. We deduce their feelings, as for the main perhaps we do for those people around us, from what they do and not what they tell us. It's a measure perhaps of the skew our focus on Shakespeare has placed on Renaissance drama, that the reflective (coughs) pentameters of Hamlet's long soliloquies have come to seem the epitome of plausible dramatic psychology, when we know... Uh, that speaking pentameter soliloquies is precisely what no, one, no, no real person would ever do, but somehow they've come to stand as a marker of dramatic psychology, plausible dramati- dramatic psychology. On the other hand, Hieronymus' traumatised, almost unbearable mood swings and unpredictability may be designated crude, but they actually have the power to affect an audience uh, potentially numbed by witnessing the play's horrific cruelties. Hamlet is obviously a play greatly influenced by the Spanish tragedy. If you know Hamlet, you'll have already recognised the ghost, the woman running mad, the hesitation over revenge, the stress on fathers and sons, (coughs) crimes in a courtly setting which are implicated with issues of succession and power, as well as the dynamics of family. But I just thought I'd mention that the modern preference for Hamlet over the Spanish tragedy is not one shared by contemporaries. Okay, so the Hamlet dates from the end of the 16th century, 1599-1600, so it's ten or a dozen years after the Spanish tragedy. It's clear from the performance and production history of the Spanish tragedy that it continued to be performed and printed long after Hamlet had bitten the dust. If, when we think about an image of high drama now, we imagine Hamlet, the uh, sort of iconic image of Hamlet talking to the skull of Yorick... For the Elizabethans, the image, not just for this play, but in some ways drama itself, was that of Hieronimo roused from sleep by a noise and discovering with the words what outcry calls me from my naked bed in his garden, the corpse of his son. It's an image visualised for the 1615 edition uh, there on your handouts. Over a 100 references to the Spanish tragedy, allusions to it, parodies of it, quotations from it, can be identified without difficulty in the popular literature of the first half of the 17th century. So maybe over 100 to the Spanish tragedy, There are you, you would find it difficult to find more than 15 references to Hamlet. Okay, so Hamlet, I'm arguing, has much less reach, much less purchase on early modern culture. Um, and it's good to remind us of how our sense of <coughs> Uh, literary history uh, is warped by the kind of later later aesthetic judgments. Contemporaries then preferred the Spanish tragedy to Hamlet thought it was better than Hamlet and I want to try and talk about why uh, without patronizing the Elizabethans as less subtle and more bloodthirsty. So why was the revenge tragedy as inaugurated by kids play so popular? Here may be a Here may be a parallel with a more recent popular genre is instructive. And here I'm thinking about the cinematic western. Westerns are all about the taming of the land and the bringing of civilization, But they generally are ambivalent about whether they prefer the rough justice of the cowboy or the more sober justice of the new institutions of law. That's pretty much usually what uh, westerns are about. John Ford's film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, is a really good example. James Stewart and John Wayne play the lawyer and the cowboy, uh, respectively, who represent different attitudes to badness in this film, which is Liberty Valance. We understand that they're alternatives because they quarrel over who's going to marry uh, the film's only marriageable woman, in the end, the lawyer comes out on top. James Stewart, unlikely, kind of, in some ways, James Stewart beats John Wayne. The lawyer comes out on top. Law beats the cowboy and gets the girl. But it's a melancholy kind of victory in which the gains made by civilization also have their costs. The Western slogan, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, is a kind of good motto for revenge tragedy. There are some compulsions ...some inner voices, which can't be ignored... ...however contrary they run uh, to uh, orthodox uh, sort of social behaviour. The Jacobean jurist and essayist Francis Bacon... ...calls revenge, in a famous quotation... ...a kind of wild justice. A kind of wild justice. That's in his short essay on revenge... ...which I really recommend to you. So revenge is a kind of wild justice... He goes on to say, which the more man's nature doth run to, the more ought law to weed it out. For as for the first wrong, it doth but offend the law, but the revenge of that wrong putteth the law out of office. So the first wrong doth but offend the law, but the revenge of that wrong putteth the law out of office. Bacon is saying that if you commit a crime, uh, you have broken the law. But if you try to punish a crime, you have completely overturned the fact that the law has jurisdiction, okay, which, which we continue to feel is a problem about uh, vigilante justice and so on. So revenge for Bacon is much, wor- is much worse than the original crime it revenges, uh, because the first crime can be punished by the law, but the second crime suggests that the law has no place at all, not just that it can be, uh, not just that it can be broken. So, revenge, Bacon recognises, exists in the gap between law and human nature. But the human desire for revenge threatens the basis of social institutions like the law itself. In calling it a kind of wild justice, though, Bacon acknowledges (coughs) the pull of revenge, the pull of revenge, the neatness of it even, and from some points, perhaps, its justifiability. In this play, Andrea gets his revenge by implicating his enemies into further crimes for which they will be pursued. The murder of Horatio means that Balthazar, who has murdered Andrea, is also the enemy of Hieronymo, and that in Hieronymo's avenging his son, uh, Andrea's restless ghost will also be revenged. <coughs> what we might think could be neater, more aesthetically and poetically perfect, than a play about revenge which ends with a play through which revenge is enacted. Probably relatively few Elizabethans enacted, or even uh, would support, personal revenge on the scale enjoyed in revenge tragedies. It doesn't work, I think, to suggest that this is what people thought then, or this is how people (laughs) behaved then. We can't really deduce much about Elizabethan society from the actions we see performed in plays. And Interestingly, uh, historians of this period... Uh, have suggested that in terms of sort of uh, social or street uh, or random violence, uh, Elizabethan London may have been rather less violent than modern London. Fewer murders, for example, than 21st century London. Where violence is really located in the Elizabethan state, and what's very different from our own c- culture, is that it's identified with the state itself. So people who went to the theatre over the one bridge that's over the Thames at this point, London Bridge, would see the heads of traitors, the tarred heads of traitors on the, uh, on the kind of spikes as a, as a sign. Visible violence, um, uh, visible hangings and, uh, and executions, um, that the marks of judicial or state violence, that's a, one of the ways in which the population is controlled. So, there is a, Elizabethan society is very violent, but much of that violence is on the side of the law, I suppose is what I'm saying, rather than uh, against it. So, I've, I've said that you know, Elizabethans didn't... It's not that revenge tragedy was popular because Elizabethans saw themselves uh, simply reflected in those <coughs> dramas. What we may be able to identify instead is a kind of vicarious fantasy of power as one of the attractions of revenge tragedy, a sort of vicarious fantasy of power. Instead of the compromises and the smallness which characterise most of our lives, revengers are single-minded, magnificent in the grandeur of their passions. Normal moral codes are suspended to terrifying but perhaps secretly delicious effect. And this may be one of the points of comparison between this play and the plays of Marlowe. Hieronymo commits terrible, demonically inventive revenges, perhaps so that we don 't have to. We experience this kind of power at one remove. The similar technique in marlowe 's plays in, in for example, Tamburlaine or Dr Faustus is that in those plays we relate we don 't exactly relate to these ranting, <coughs> rhetorically excessive and larger than life characters but that we look up to them because they are unlike us, bigger and less trammelled. They're kind of like superheroes. Okay, so uh, there's there's quite a good argument that early drama, by which I mean drama of the 1580s and 90s in this context, uh, pulls people to the theatre to see things which are very unfamiliar to them, and that's what they enjoy. Uh, they're, They're linguistically unfamiliar, characters in plays don't talk like ordinary people. Uh, They're in exotic locations or they're showing us um, uh, uh, kinds of encounters which are so separate from everyday life that that seems to be part of their appeal. Something different happens, and we'll talk more about these kinds of plays later in term, something different happens around the turn of the 17th century when people start to go um, more more to plays which are about the contemporary world, about contemporary London and London places, the so-called city comedies, where the language is much closer to the language that's actually spoken, uh, plays which tend to be in prose uh, rather than verse. But kids' play really belongs to that earlier part where what happens in the theatre <coughs> is something which is uh, wonderfully removed from, uh, from everyday life. Hieronymo takes over the power of life and death. And we might say that in meeting out revenge, he explicitly usurps divine power. The biblical injunction, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, would seem to suggest uh, that Hieronymus has taken up something uh, appropriate to God rather than to man. Revenge, writes Bacon, conquers death. That's in his essay on death. Revenge conquers death. And here perhaps we can see a parallel between revenge tragedy and another popular modern genre, the genre of detective fiction. Like modern detective stories, revenge tragedies imagine a world in which death is not the senseless and ultimately inscrutable business of an unseen and mysterious fate. It's not, death is not attributable to that strange process that we can't really understand. Instead, deaths in revenge tragedy, as in detective stories, are attributable to entirely human agents who can be discovered and then punished. Unlike the thousands of early modern parents who had to accept the death of a child as part of the unfathomable plan of God, Hieronimo's son is killed by humans, and Hieronimo has the power to take control and revenge uh, against those humans. Paradoxically, then, given how much Hieronimo is injured by and acted upon by other people, his story is a fantasy of human agency. He's able to do something. He punishes his son's murders, murderers and then takes his own life in a final act of gleeful revenge on his enemies. Perhaps the cruelest part of Hieronimo's revenge is those he does not kill. The viceroy of Portugal, who is Balthazar's father, and the king of Spain, Imperia's father, are both left alive. Parental grief seems to be the ultimate earthly punishment. No parent, the play seems to say, should ever bury their child. And in dramatising this terrible violation of natural order, the Spanish tragedy does something that almost all the plays which follow it and which imitate it can't do. After the Spanish tragedy, the pattern of revenge tragedy shifts entirely to the scenario in which sons avenge fathers. Okay, so the Spanish tragedy is about a father avenging a son. But after the Spanish tragedy, we get sons avenging murdered fathers, as we do in Hamlet. And while this psychological scenario (coughs) is a poignant one, Freud was able to suggest, of course, that it was the symbol of the aggression felt by male children towards their parent rivals in the so-called Oedipus complex. It's a poignant one, therefore, but it's also an entirely natural one. Just because it's Claudius who tells Hamlet that Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these mourning duties to your father. But you must know, your father lost a father, that father lost, lost his, and the survivor bound in filial obligation for some term to do obsequious (coughs) sorrow. So just because it's Claudius who tells Hamlet that doesn't mean we should dismiss it totally. Parents die, Claudius is saying, it's tough, but it happens. It's part of the condition of being a son. Your father will die before you. But sons, as as Hieronimo knows, ought to live. Sons are your posterity, your continuance in a world which otherwise obliterates you through your own mortality. When Isabella, Horatio's mother, runs mad in their garden, she destroys the tree on which her son was hanged. It's a symbol of their destroyed family tree, the truncated history of their line, the end of the future, one of the things that tragedy perhaps... uh, most decisively seems to snuff out is not just individuals but a future and tragedies are curiously pessimistic about what, what could possibly come next after this the hanging son in the garden killed despite his own innocence of course stirs visual and emotional parallels with the ultimate murdered son of Christian iconography Jesus, uh, a figure who like revenge conquers death itself The Spanish tragedy then, I want to argue, is an extended and emotional discussion of death and the fear of death and the ways, emotional, psychic and cultural, that we try to buttress ourselves against its power. The other aspect of the Spanish tragedy which was, I think, especially painful and therefore not repeated by later writers in the genre was the fact that we meet Horatio and we see him murdered before our very eyes. It's a dramatisation of our inability to prevent what happens happening. Other revenge tragedy writers, including Shakespeare, make the initial act which must be revenged happen outside the confines of the play, so that old Hamlet, who we never meet, is already dead by the time the play starts. In this way, Shakespeare collapses the two revenge victims of the Spanish tragedy, Andrea and Horatio, into one ghostly victim. I think this creates more distance and a different sense of bereavement and outrage from the murder of young Horatio in the garden in front of our eyes in Act 2 of the Spanish tragedy. (coughs) Our sympathy with Hieronimo, even as he commits his own atrocities in repayment, is heightened then perhaps by our almost culpability at the son's death we stood on and watched. (coughs) Perhaps that too is meant to be a a distant recapitulation of the events of the first Holy Week that we should feel sympathy with Hieronimo, there's evidence that the play's original audiences did and that they were moved by his stark and stylised expressions of grief. So that we should feel sympathy with Hieronimo is perhaps all the more extraordinary given the play's title. To call a play the Spanish tragedy in the London theatre around 1590 would be like calling a play the Soviet tragedy in Washington DC in 1961-2 or the Iranian tragedy in Israel in 2009 i.e. it would be a kind of title which would either uh, generate the thought, good, it's good that they have a tragedy, a tragedy for them can only be good for uh, us, or, you know, who cares, or whatever. So, the word Spanish and tragedy, around 1590, could together, you would think, could only be good for England... One of the things that's odd about the play is that although there are moments of Hispanophobia or anti-Spanish prejudice in the play, and there are a couple of strangely misplaced eulogies on Englishness, the play (laughs) seems largely to forget its nominal setting and the negative associations of Spain for an English audience. We'll see some later plays which set terrible behaviour in Catholic Italy, for example, uh, later in the term, where Italy and its Catholicism seems part of what's so wrong with that world. I don't think Spain functions in the same way at all in the Spanish tragedy. It curiously doesn't seem to matter. Um, The play seems to forget the negative associations of Spain for an English audience and bring us to sympathise with Hieronimo rather than to gloat over him. I've suggested that the Spanish tragedy is a fantasy of vicarious power and that Hieronimo takes up the power to mete out deaths, including his own, and thus make some kind of macabre sense out of a sequence of senseless occurrences. But we could also read this play as a demonstration of human impotence... ...because of the presence throughout the action of the Coric pair, Revenge and Andrea. They are on stage all through the action... ...speaking sometimes in a kind of commentary at the end of scenes on what we have seen. Andrea is impatient to see his revenge. Revenge himself counsels patience. But when in Act 3... Andrea follows a scene in which Hieronymo lulls Lorenzo into a false sense of friendship so he doesn't suspect the play that he's about to put on <coughs> so Hieronymo is pretending to be friendly to Lorenzo this worries Andrea considerably and he shakes awake the sleeping revenge saying i didn't come here to see my enemies you know getting friendly with each other what's happening what's happening with my plot where's my revenge I think here the play focuses attention on one of its central questions. If, as I think is the case, all tragedies are about the question of agency, they're about the question of agency. Why does the stuff that happens happen? That's the question tragedy asks us. (coughs) Is is the uh, factor of causation human, the idea that character is destiny? Is it cosmic, the idea of star-crossed lovers? Is it moral, the idea of a punishing god? Is it accidental? senseless and without purpose. So if questions about agency are in, in the nature of tragedy, then here the question of agency is satisfyingly complicated. Is revenge asleep in this midpoint of the play because the play's revenge plot is treading water for a time? All revenge plays need, of course, a delay between the crime and its retribution, otherwise there would be no play. So is revenge asleep because the revenge plot is... Uh, just kind of resting, or is the revenge plot apparently stalling because revenge is asleep? Put it another way: Does revenge control the action, and in which case is he a personif- <coughs> is he a personification of human emotions, or a supernatural godlike figure, or does he reflect the actions of the humans? Some critics have seen revenge and Andrea as puppet masters manipulating the action of the humans in the play. Others have suggested that the play ultimately endorses the particular power of human agency. When the Royal Shakespeare Company last performed the play in 1997 in a production directed by Michael Boyd, they had an interesting take on this. Revenge had been dressed throughout as a hooded Grim Reaper figure. After the play's final words, he took off his hood for the first time and revealed that he was actually Hieronymo. The play then started again from the beginning, and this time the dead Horatio delivered the famous opening lines originally heard from the lips of the ghost of Andrea. When this eternal substance of my soul did live imprisoned in my wanton flesh, I was a courtier in the Spanish court. My name was Don Horatio. The sense was that revenge inaugurates endless cycles of violence, uh, that the revenger becomes so consumed by revenge that they almost come to personify it, they lose their humanity. Uh, and that revenge is ultimately dehumanizing, that it takes away individual, individuality and transforms men into personifications. That was very striking. Elsewhere, this play may seem paradoxically paradoxically to suggest that revenge affirms or constructs rather than undermines individual identity, so that revenge affirms or constructs rather than undermines identity. The Spanish tragedy shows us different early modern understandings of what identity is. Firstly, it's an idea, it's, it's a concept constructed through kin and through social networks. Hieronymus' identity is fixed through hierarchical relationships to the king, to his son, to his wife ...to people who work for him. And in this, as in many Elizabethan and Jacobean plays... ...identity is a product of the exterior. It's the subject connected with society... ...rather than, as we might <coughs> expect... ...identity as something interior and private. But Hieronymo's traumatic education in the play... ...jolts him into increasing withdrawal... ...separation from others... ...and into deceits in which his exterior masks... ...rather than reveals himself... Part of this is registered in the way the stage most easily demonstrates this, the mode of soliloquy. There are no soliloquies in the play until Act 2, Scene 5, the moment pictured on the uh, title page and that I've already mentioned having the kind of pictorial clarity and currency as a cinema advertising campaign nowadays, the moment when Hieronimo enters the stage to find his dead son. Hieronimo enters in his nightshirt, a kind of dressing gown, so he's presented for the first time in his private capacity, rather than, as we see him elsewhere in the play, as a public person, a lawyer or a royal fixer. He begins a kind of conversation as he enters the stage, by asking questions and expecting a reply from whoever (coughs) made the noise which disturbed him. What outcry calls me from my naked bed and chills my throbbing heart with trembling fear, which danger yet, which, sorry, which never danger yet could daunt before. Who calls Hieronimo? Speak, here I am. I did not slumber, therefore t'was no dream. No, no, it was some woman cried for help, and here within this garden did she cry, and in this garden must I rescue her. But stay, what murderous spectacle is this, a man hanged up and all the murderers gone, and in my bower to lay the guilt on me. This place was made for pleasure, not for death. These garments that he wears I oft have seen. Alas, it is Horatio, my sweet son. Hieronymo, that's to say, enters the stage expecting dialogue. But when his interlocu- interlocutors turn out to be fled or dead, his words turn into something quite different, a soliloquy. For Hieronymo, then, it seems that the moment of loss is also the moment of modern personhood, In losing his son, he has gained a newly agonised sense of himself in which outer cannot fully express the inner. And this exciting representational and psychological possibility is, I think, perhaps key to the popularity of tragedy on the early modern stage. In tragedies, loss becomes central to human identity. Loss becomes central to the formation of human identity. Just as in the Spanish tragedy and the plays it enabled which come after it, The discovery of that inner identity is part of an inevitable narrative process of its destruction. The revenger must die. Eyes, no eyes. World, no world. I want finally uh, to to touch on the end of the play. In the Spanish tragedy, Hieronimo produces Solomon and Persida, a play he tells us he wrote as a student as a celebratory entertainment to Mark Balthazar and Belimperia's wedding. Hieronymo is so mad, as I've already said, that everyone decides it's best to humour him, and through this play, Hieronymo is able to make his enemies kill each other in a highly ritualised spectacle of poetic, even dramatic, justice. As the court applaud, not knowing that what they have seen is uh, their brightest stars being murdered in front of their eyes, uh, Hieronymo comes forward like a sort of demonic master of ceremonies to give a, a gloss on what's happened. Happily you think, but bootless be your thoughts, that this is fabulously counterfeit, and that we do as all tragedians do, to die today for fashioning our scene, the death of Ajax or some Roman peer, And in a minute, starting up again, revive, to please tomorrow's audience. Don't think this is just a play and everyone will get up in a minute, gloats Hieronimo, while the court is coming to grips with what they'd seen. They're actually really dead. Solomon and Persida is a macabre tribute, then, to the power of drama. Drama is the cultural form that most defines the Elizabethans. They invent it it in public theatres, they invent it in the form we understand now. And and it's the form I think in which they are most themselves. I'll try and, and, I can only assert that now, but I'll try and show you a bit more about that through the term. And Solomon and Persida is a really great tribute to that power. Playing on a free song, the acted deaths might be real ones, like the kick people are supposed to get from watching a snuff movie. Hieronimo does the business through a play. He does not merely act, but enacts revenge in a dazzling reflection on the power of a drama which is still stretching its limbs out in the new physical and creative space it's discovering at the beginning of the 1590s. Drama really makes things happen, Hieronymus' play asserts, and there's no space in the play to contradict this sense of theatre's potency. You can see, if you wanted to compare it briefly with Hamlet's Mousetrap, you can see Hamlet's much less clear that drama makes things happen. Uh, It's a very different use of the play within the play. Solomon and Persida is the self-reflexive climax of the Spanish tragedy. The play ends and has its theatrical and its effective consummation in a play. So my aim in this lecture, which, is, which I'm now finishing, is to suggest that you should join all those Elizabethans and Jacobeans I already cited and read kids one short masterpiece, The Spanish Tragedy, if you haven't already. And I'm afraid that's why I didn't give you all the quotations uh, on your <coughs> handout. Kids play captivated <coughs> that culture. Kids play captivated that culture. And in understanding that, we can access lots of things about that culture. And I've tried to suggest that in its inscriptions of personhood and identity, in its negotiations with the idea of mortality, and in its submerged echoes of Christian myth and iconography, the, the play has a real hold on the early modern period. Next week, I'm going to be taking Arden of Faversham, a play in which a wife and her lover plot to murder her husband a play which has some big some links with big changes of the reformation with gender and household politics and an unavoidable black comedy which undermines its ostensible attempt <coughs> to be didactic thanks and i hope i'll see you next week